another episode of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview interesting and inspiring people from the wonderful world of education. Now, this is one of my conference takeaway podcasts where I attend a conference, this case online, and at the end of the day, I sit down with a fellow delegate and we discuss some of the sessions we attended and our key takeaways from them. And I'm delighted to say I am joined by my regular conference takeaway po- co-host, sorry, Joe Morgan. Hello, Joe. Hi, Craig. How are you? I'm all right. Yeah, well, like everyone else, I'm pretty tired at the moment, but... Give me get, well. Let's start there before we dive in any further. Would you say more knackered or less knackered than after a face to face conference? Um, actually, probably less physically tired. Although I think you know the difference with here is that when we did this in June online, we'd all been sat in front of our computer for months, and so at least you know this was a bit different. Where I, I you know, during the week now, I'm on my feet all day and I'm running around school. So actually, it wasn't so it wasn't so much of a drag to sit in front of the computer all day today. So I actually quite liked it. Um, but I just say that the um, it's that thing, isn't it, where it gets to the it gets to the October conference, and you think this is crazy timing. Like, who would have a conference at this terrible time of year? And then you go to the conference, and you end at the end of the day, you just think that was awesome. I'm so pleased I did it. And it's and it's the same whether it's online or in person. You know, you just sort of feel quite invigorated afterwards. Absolutely. And we should say this, we're talking here about MathConf 24, which is the, obviously the 24th uh, Maths Conference that Mark McCourt and the LaSalle team have hosted. And this is the second one that's been virtual, uh, completely online. Uh, Joe and I sat down at the end of the the previous one, as, as you said, back in June. And this is the second online one. Now, before we go any further as well, I should say I felt this one was far better organised. I don't know what was going on with the tech or something. It was like a, like a bloody dream, wasn't it? Just navigating, dipping in and out of sessions. There was none of that annoying Zoom chat function kept popping up and stuff. What, what did you think? Were you impressed with the slickness? Of I, I thought it was amazing, Craig. I don't know. I don't know if they've. Um, I don't know if other companies have done this or if LaSalle are kind of trailblazers here. Because um, any any other organisation that wants to run a conference really need to look at how LaSalle did it today. Because it was um, it was very impressive. Like you say, totally slick. No one else was in Zoom apart from the speakers. Um, I think we're all sick of Zoom. But it was such a good interface. And I just felt like I knew what I was doing all day. Whereas, and you weren't having to sort of search around for links. So, yeah, well done to LaSalle for that. I think that was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I agree. And we should say, um, as far as we're aware, if you bought a ticket for this, um, all the sessions are going to be um, online and available for you to watch, um, I think in a couple of weeks time uh, was said. So any of the sessions that we talk about or any that we don't talk about, you can go ahead and watch them. Now, before we dive in, a couple of big announcements here. So I'm going to start, Joe, with a world exclusive. Um, now, with this, we've been thinking about this for a while and we're ready to, to tell the world. So in October 2019, Joe and I did our first ever conference together that we we ran ourselves, designed ourselves, hosted ourselves. We did one down south in Joe's school and one up north in Trinity in Halifax. And we called it Marvellous Maths and they were sellout events. And we had big plans, didn't we, Joe, to, to reproduce the same. In fact, we were going on a bit of a tour. We were going to do one down south, one in the Midlands, one up north, and then one in Scotland. Do the... F- Full stretch. You booked out your, the, the second week of your half term. Yeah. And then, obviously, COVID happened and um, no CPD, face-to-face CPD is, is going to be happening on that scale. So 
what we thought, what are we going to do about it? Should we just have a bit of a sit-off during that half term? But we thought, no, we're going to do Marvelous Maths 2, but we're going to do it on an online basis. And it's going to be on demand. You're going to be able to watch it through my uh, conference platform whenever you want. It's going to be super low cost. Um, and we're currently writing and, and planning it and going to be recording it over the next couple of weeks, hopefully due to be released um, at some point later on in October. And I'm going to exclusively reveal here, Joe, for the public, uh, the full tagline of it. So it's called Marvelous Maths 2, Misconceptions, Methods and Mastery. Now, what's your take on this, Joe, already? You've already seen a bit of, the, bit of my material. What, what do you think? Yeah, well, first of all, I love the alliteration. Like, could we think of anything else that begins with N that we can talk about? I know. Well, we'll, we'll, <laughs> when we come back next year, we'll chuck another yeah. M on the end as well. Um, yes, we, we've picked out a few topics, and um, I'm really excited because, you know, you, you, you're, um, you're going to be talking about misconceptions, and you have such rich data on that from um, diagnostic questions, and it's really interesting to look at any misconceptions. Um, and then on the same topic, I'll be talking about um, some of the pedagogy and the methods and, and all that kind of thing. So I think it's going to, and the resources. So I think it's going to work really well, those sort of two things side by side. Um, and, and, it, and again, it's kind of like a topics in depth stuff, isn't it? Where we're going to we're gonna go do a deep dive on some three particular topics, um, which I think is a really good use of maths teachers' time to, to, to really think in depth about what they're about to teach. I think so too. And we're going to choose topics. So it's going to be um, primary appropriate as well as secondary. And yeah, and it's, it's going to be exciting. So we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk more about that. And in fact, we're going to talk more about that when you come back on the show, because I've booked you again for a couple of weeks time for a key stage three, teaching key stage three special, because that was what your talk was on today. And my fear is when we do these, we never get a chance to speak about each other's um, talks and sessions in depth because it's always it tends to be the end of the day and blah 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 and and we're knackered and you're you're very modest you don't like kind of bigging up yourself I, I don't have a problem with that um, <laughs> with, with me but it becomes quite difficult to speak about each other's sessions so instead because it's such an important topic and I'm, and I'm fascinated about how you've you've taken to, to, to teaching key stage three because I know know you were big into key stage four and I know you're a bit apprehensive about this yeah. and having watched your session today I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And I've got loads of follow-up questions as well. So you're going to come back on the show to talk purely about key, uh, teaching key stage three. So that's why we're not going to be talking about that a lot today. And my advice to people listening would be to watch Joe's session that she did on that in preparation for the follow-up uh, podcast. And if you've got any extra questions for Joe, just drop either me or Joe um, a message on Twitter and I'll build those into to the running order for that. A couple of other announcements. Um, so this was, I think, the first maths conference I've ever attended where I haven't done a session. That's not for any dramatic reason. It's only that I, I missed the deadline on this. It was always in my head to do one, and then I was just poorly organized for, for, for one reason or another. Um, so I was going to talk about the seven ways that you can use the ultimate scheme of work, which is a, a series of quizzes that I wrote on diagnostic questions, all completely free. So instead, I've recorded that as a standalone course, free course. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. A few hundred people have already done it, but if you were interested in what I was going to be talking about, again, there's misconceptions in there, but also how to use diagnostic questions in this age that we live in now, where the teacher's perhaps stuck at the front of the classroom and how do you assess students' understanding and get them thinking deeper and stuff. Um, please check that out. So that's, I think, seven ways the ultimate scheme of work could change your life or something like that. And one other podcast announcement, Joe, you're going to be loving this, right? Mm. You're a fan of Colin Foster, are you not? Of course I am, yes. 
And Colin, as we know, as is in charge of the Mathematics Centre at the University of Loughborough. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking of ways to kind of take the podcast to the next level. Now, picture this, Joe. What about a mini-series of episodes? Forget your kind of Netflix gritty drama mini-series. What about a maths research podcast special mini-series where I interview each, uh, each of Colin's colleagues, between, I think, six or eight of them, one on each episode, and they tell us about an area of maths education that they're researching, why they're researching it, what they've found out, what surprises they've been, and what impact they believe it might have in the classroom. Would you listen to that, Joe? I think that would be fascinating. I'm always wondering what's being researched. I kind of have it in my head that basically it's there's like mixed attainments always being researched and I don't know what else like you know I really I really feel like um I don't know what what the current kind of research topics are and also I'd be really interested do you know you know that um the team at Loughborough have been gathering ideas from teachers haven't they yes Tom Frankham yes yeah and and I'm I'm fascinated to see what comes out of that and I was very excited to put forward my own ideas on things that I would kind of like answers on you know I'd like to know I'd like to know what does the research say about these things that that I think about so yes I I think that would be absolutely fascinating I'd love to hear these uh, uh, these little mini episodes on on what what people are up to in research. I just need the alliterative title, and then I'm good to go on that. That's what's holding me back, or a pun. That's what's holding me back so far. So, listeners, anything to do, if you've got Loughborough in there, maths research in there, whizzing your ideas for the title, and we're good to go. Uh, right, just before we dive into maths conf, Joe, I wanted to get your take, and I'll share my take on something that's been kicking off on Twitter uh, this week. So, we're recording this on the third of October, 2020, and this has been the week of Twitter of a decimal point gate. Now, if you didn't see this tweet, um, it was... Can you remember that? I've, I've forgotten the name of the person who put the tweet out. Of, I've, I've called it up um, here, but you're, you're, you're really good with names. I am good, and I think I know what it is, but I'm actually going to check. It's, it starts with P, doesn't it? Is it Jonathan Payne or something? Let me just check. Yeah, I think, um, I think Yes, right. Jonathan Payne, I believe. Although I'm going to admit, Craig, that I have been so busy at work, the busiest I've ever been, because being an assistant principal of a school during COVID times is just destroying me um i i haven't seen a huge amount of it so you're gonna have to fill me in on what why why was there a controversy with his tweet well this, this is brilliant this so jonathan payne you're absolutely right he, he puts this out he's dr p maths on twitter and he puts out uh this is i'll quote the tweet a regular reminder that moving the decimal point is fine and he shows a little animation here of multiplying 3.141 by 100 And he does it by shifting the decimal point two places to the right, so you get 314.1. Just chucks that tweet into the mix, and then it all kicks off. So um, again, people can follow the the thread. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, You've got primary experts saying, no, it isn't. It really isn't. You've got people asking what mathematically speaking do students understand by this method. You've got loads of GIFs of just shocked faces. You've got one GIF of somebody throwing up um, as a result of this. And then you can imagine it's all kicking off as a result. Now, there's a, pedagogically, um, the, I think there's a really useful discussion to be, to be had here about this, whether we teach our kids what's potentially a trick of multiplying, of, of moving the decimal point, and whether it is mathematically more accurate to say the point stays where it is but the numbers move although i question whether the numbers the digits actually move yeah, see, that themselves just like the same. that's just like the same. you move the point you move the numbers you're moving something there and if yeah about it being mathematically it, sound then probably we're not really moving anything are we yeah, that, that was definitely my take. If you, if, you, if you think hard about this, I don't think anything's, I don't think anything's moving. And indeed, um, what was really interesting was, was Jonathan, he cited um, links to an article by Colin Foster, who we've already mentioned, who says that it's certainly not 
it, like it's, it's not right to say to kids you've got a misconception if you think about moving the yeah. decimal point yeah and and lots of people in the thread say look this is the way we do it so why would we kind of deprive our students of, of a method that we use ourselves and this has been something a recurring theme on the podcast i think danny quinn was one of the first to bring my attention to this that often we deprive kids of of mathematical shortcuts that we take and is it like, should we be forcing them to do perhaps less efficient ways that are more mathematically sound, or should we allow them to use the, these methods? So, so that's one side of the debate. But the other thing I just wanted to, to say, and I'll shut up, and, and if you've got anything to say, um, feel free to add it, Joe. The thing that the reason I'm bringing this up is that it just like it, this could have been a really rich discussion, but yet it took such a negative turn because people just dive in and just say. This is ridiculous. And then that's it. Not this is ridiculous because it's just like, this is ridiculous. You are wrong. And then loads of other people who follow them just pile in. And this is when the gifts start coming and all this kind of stuff. And I spoke well, when Naveen was on the podcast a, a couple of years ago now, we had a chat at the start and I said to Naveen, I'm really reluctant to share things on Twitter these days because it's just not worth it. Because people take one glance at it and just react straight away and then loads of other people pile in. And I don't think I'm mentally strong enough these days to, to, to cope with stuff like that, Like certainly like I used to be. And this was just a regular reminder. And Jonathan's coped with it really, really well. He's he's not engaged with the people who are, who are just kind of being quite abusive or rude. Um, he's, he's linking to Colin Foster's article and he is engaging in debate with the people who are who are wanting to have that mathematical debate but it's just for me another example where twitter could be super useful this could be a fascinating thread but it's just descended into like one side versus the other and so on um, anyway joe anything to add on on either of those takes um yeah i agree that it's yeah it's not it's it's a i don't know why where the such strong feelings come from on these things like it's almost like it's life or death you know it's like this is so important to me and i'm gonna that you know it's it's weird isn't it like why is that why, why are people so, so passionate about something which is, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a weird, it's a weird thing to be mean to someone about, you know, yeah. and, um, and actually, and often you get people talking about things and I think, well, actually, this has been debated for centuries. And I know, I know it's been debated for centuries because I, because I read lots of old books and I see the things that they used to talk about. And it's sort of, um, it's, it's interesting that people would say that you, you can move the digits and not the dots and, and be so stuck on that idea. Um, whereas, yeah, I, I bounce dots around everywhere. <laughs> That's what I do. Um, but um, I'm not saying I necessarily teach my students that, but I'm actually, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think how I do teach my students. And actually in Chris McGrain's session today, he talked about um, the Gotegno place value chart and all that kind of thing. We've got these, or the sort of, you know, he's, he, there are other ways of thinking about it, but I just don't feel strongly either way. And I, um, another, a really interesting comparison or a similar one is on the um, multiplying decimals, where I was taught at school that if I multiply two decimals, I multiply the, the numbers and then I count how many decimal places are in the answer. And 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 I suppose when I teach my students, then I might teach them by using, say, fractions. I mean, I've got a whole chapter on this in my book on how the different methods you can teach for multiplying decimals. But I think for me to then never say to them or get them to notice, oh, by the way, um, you have the same number of decimal places in the question as in the answer. And isn't that a quick, convenient, nice way of doing it? For me to never say that just seems mean because that's how I do it. And it's convenient and quick. And as long as they understand why that works, which is pretty easy to explain, because that's a very um, straightforward one conceptually about why those that decimal place counting works. Um, I just I don't understand why people get so hung up on that. And so like so anyway, um, if you read back at some books from the 30s, 
it was a huge debate. There were basically teachers in this country who were saying, you must never count the decimal places. And then there were some teachers saying, oh, those people who are saying that are basically idiots. And it was like, (laughs) even back in the 30s, there was this equivalent to Twitter where people were just rude to each other about it. Um, So it's funny, isn't it? People get really stuck on things. And I don't tend to feel passionately about these things in the way other people do it's like I'm like yeah I can see the pros and cons and I can and I I don't really know the answer because really anyone that says they know the right way is wrong they don't know the right way because no one actually knows the right way like we none of us have a definitive answer on any of these things and it's quite frustrating that people are so um so sure of themselves but anyway, I actually, I missed the whole debate, thank God, because it sounds horrible, um, because I haven't had time for Twitter all week, and I've just been sort of dipping in to check my notifications. Um, but yeah, I do I do feel for anyone that's on the receiving end of that kind of thing. And like yeah, Chris it, McGrain, did you hear Chris McGrain's session? He said, look, people just need to calm down. Yeah, and he's... he's, some, he's some, <laughs> He summed it up. He summed it up perfect. Yeah. Just, just f- final word on this, Joe, and then, then we'll move on. Um, I think it can be a positive that people are really passionate about it. Like, like mm-hmm. people are arguing because they, everybody wants the same thing, right? Everybody wants kids to, to understand and be successful yes, at exactly. mathematics. So so that's the positive, but there are, there are different ways of, of going about it. The final thought, and again, feel free to, to comment on this. This is something I've been wrestling with, with for, for many years now. And that is, like, to use your example there of multiplying decimals, which yeah. I think is a really good example. And like, it almost feels to me like kids have to qualify to use the trick or the quick method by first demonstrating that they understand it. And that's the way I've always done it. I've always said, like, you can use this technique so long as you understand why it works. But again, this goes back to this this debate that we always have on this show about this how before the why. Like, could it not be the case that actually that that, that almost feels like the wrong way to go about it, particularly if, if the, the why the method works is quite complex? Can't it be that we can kind of teach the kids the tricks and they're starting to then get confident about it, feel successful? And then perhaps later on that year or maybe next year or whenever, we can say, you know this thing that you can do, multiply decimals. Now let's dive into why this works. It just feels a little bit weird that they have to kind of qualify to to, to use a, a more efficient method. If yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. Yes, and, and methods are. I mean, I wouldn't say trick at all for this. I'd say for for like, you know for counting mm. decimals. I would say that's just a a way of doing it. Yes, um, and the thing is. Um, I had a really interesting situation at school a couple of weeks ago. So we've got an NQT in our department and he's come, he actually, he was at Loughborough. So he was uh, taught by uh, Tom Frankham and Colin Foster. And he's been, he's been given this wonderful um, education in how to be a maths teacher. And he's come in saying um, he, 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 he's so um, wants the students to understand the why. And it's been really interesting to see very quickly where he's 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 finding that difficult because so he was trying to explain um, the division law for index laws. And he was mm-hmm. trying to explain why you subtract the indices. And by he was teaching a, um, a low attaining set and they couldn't understand the why. And the why was, it, it was to do with, um, I'm going to use the word cancelling, I'm afraid, cancelling fractions. You know, like if you've got um, X times X times X on the top and then you've got X times X on the bottom and then, you know, yes. two of those X cancel out. So it seems like a fairly straightforward thing to explain conceptually, but they were struggling to understand the why because they didn't have a strong enough knowledge of, um, of simplifying fractions or, or cancelling common factors in fractions. And then he got hung up on that. So then he wasn't, he couldn't make progress on teaching index laws because he said he couldn't possibly teach index laws until they understood the um, the why. And they couldn't understand the why because their prior knowledge on fractions wasn't strong enough. And I thought this was absolutely fascinating. I'm already learning so much from him because, you know, he's only a few weeks into to working at my school and I'm thinking this is really interesting. And he's got a good point. 
like perhaps they shouldn't be moving on to something if they can't if they haven't got the prerequisite skills to understand why it works but at the same time I didn't understand most of maths until I became a teacher yes, <laughs> you know, like, yes. I knew how to do a lot of it and then I mean Mark McCall talks about this with the sort of his process of you know he talks about how you have to have that kind of downtime in between I can't remember what mm. it is, but it's that you learn it and it's when you come back to it you kind of then get that level of understanding and for me I swear I learned all this stuff at school came back to it you know 10 years later and then it then I understood it all and I don't think it's the I don't think it's I don't think we can get hung up on this. We they have to understand this really deeply and understand all the conceptual stuff when they're still novices, because in some cases they'll have to become a bit more expert before that that understanding comes. But what I don't like is anyone saying that we're not trying to teach for understanding, because I don't believe that there's any teacher, a maths teacher in the world, who doesn't want their children to understand things. So yeah, I think that understanding might take a while, but we all want it to come, and some, sometimes it won't come for a very long time. Absolutely. And and before that understanding comes, kids may need to experience some success, which may yeah. come from doing a method that they don't fully understand. Yeah, right. um, absolutely, Joe. Right. Well, um, as ever, we always like to go on little tangents on these uh, on these conference takeaways. So now let's let's bring it back. You, you've teased uh, session one, which was Chris McGrain on mathematical tasks. Now, I was also um, in this session. We, we never plan these things out. We just see, you know, what, what we choose. But by, by chance, we both went for this one. As I mentioned on Twitter, thank God you were also in this one, because whilst I'm trying to get my head around connectionist, transmission, discovery, all these wonderful things Chris is talking about, Isaac's just thrusting this book in front of me, red car green car i don't know if you've come across this one no Jane, this yeah. must be relatively new because that was not a big oh, one when mine were little no it is boring as anything <laughs> it's a car that you pull down a flap and it goes from red to green and then you talk about green things for a bit then you pull pull another flap and it goes to blue and so on and he loves it he loves it we must have read it about you know i'd say about 13 times during chris's right. session so my mind was slightly elsewhere but um, i wanted to start off our discussion about this session i thought it was an excellent session mm-hmm. just by mentioning now I, the, chris's book i haven't got it yet it's it's, it's on its way, and I think Chris is going to come on the show to talk about his book on mathematical tasks. But I was looking at the back of this book, Joe, and whose name did I see as one of the kind of contributors? Um, Joe Morgan. Yeah. So my first question to you is, what, what role do you have in, in this book? Um, I think, I mean, I haven't seen the book yet either. I mean, you know, come on, hurry up, John Cat, because I'm hoping for them to send me a copy. Um, and But I, I, the, we, I did talk to him about Don Stewart, and I actually, I sent a couple of, um, I, sent, I sent some paragraphs about some Don Stewart tasks that I particularly like and what I like about them um so um I'm really looking forward to reading it because if you look at the list of contributors it's kind of just a a load of people that have got really interesting things to say about um task design um and I'm very interested in task design you know I know that my blog is resourceholic.com but now I'm thinking uh tasks are probably the thing I'm most interested in and I know that resources and tasks aren't the same thing but you know a lot of uh, if you if you look in my resource libraries I'm 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 often picking things that I think are good tasks um so yeah can't wait for the book um and yeah I'm looking forward to seeing my little bit on John Stewart or, or whatever's in there I don't know what's in there <laughs> um yeah I am um, I was delighted to be asked obviously to write about John um because his resources mean a lot to me so yeah Fantastic, superb. And again, just before we um, we dive into your thoughts on the session, just one other question for you. Um, I'm interested, um, again, I, I too have, have started to get a bit more, well, a lot more obsessed with, with tasks over resources over the last few years. Um, if you were to pinpoint it, Joe, what, what like, I, and take this question either way, either what mistakes did you used to make in the past when choosing or writing your own tasks? Or if you prefer, what do you now look for? What makes a good task for you? What qualifies for something that you're going to use with your kids? 
Um, I think I've come to understand a bit more that I mean, Chris talked about the task types and you know the, the you're built, you, you've got tasks that build procedural fluency and tasks that build conceptual understanding and tasks that build problem solving skills and some tasks kind of do more than one of those things and so I think I kind of have this understanding now of um, you know when I'm I, I want I, I'm mainly looking for rich tasks which I believe build fluency and at the same time um, you know build that sort of kind of problem solving and those other mathematical skills. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's there were some there were so many interesting things in the session. But I do think if I look at the tasks I used early in my career, I, I guess I, I didn't really I didn't really think about them as much as I do now. Whereas now, because I know where to get good tasks really quickly, you know, I, I normally I sort of think I know a great Don Stewart task that's going to work brilliantly in this lesson, and I know it will kind of um, it will develop the fluency and at the same time give them some rich thinking, at the same time promote a really great discussion pull out some misconceptions and all that kind of thing. So, you know, I suppose I've, uh, as, as you get to know what's available, you get to you get to sort of be a bit more expert in choosing the right task for the lesson. Have you gone back on Resourceaholic and removed anything? Like, have um, you, do you, I remember what, do you, what's your policy there? Yeah, I do remove things occasionally, every now and then. But I don't, I don't kind of, I haven't got time to go and quality check everything. So what I do is, if I'm looking for a resource on a, a certain topic and I'm going through my own links, and I open one up, it's like, oh, God, what have I put that on there for? <laughs> and I remove it. Um, I don't do it very often. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think I was criticised early on for having people said they were just kind of, I had too many just fluency worksheets on there. But when I look, I don't think there are, there are that many. I don't think I have, you know, there's no point in me putting that on because, you know, if someone wants a fluency worksheet, they just use a 10 ticks or something. They don't need to come to my blog. So I, I don't think I have much like that on there. I think I, I mainly have things where... Either it, either it looks like a fluency worksheet, but I just think that it's got a really good set of questions. Like, say, for example, a Maths for Everyone worksheet. Like, you know, I just think that they just look like a standard worksheet and there's, like, nothing interesting there. But actually, I just think that the questions are chosen really well to pull out misconceptions and promote discussion. So I see that, you know, I, I think that they're worth including. And then, um, and yeah, I've, you know, I've got loads of Don Stewart on there and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with my collection of resources. But there may be some... There may be some rubbish ones on there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure not. I'm sure not. Um, anyway, what, what were some of your kind of key takeaways from Chris's uh, session, Joe? Um, well, lots of stuff actually. And it, it was, you know, he talked about the um, the way the ways of thinking about maths teaching being: we think about curriculum, we think about instruction or pedagogy, we think about assessment, professional culture, CPD, and then the kind of fifth thing there is tasks, which are really the central. He said the central medium in every maths lesson. Mm. And he's absolutely right because you know my I just feel like everything is is built to like you know the, the moment where they it all really comes together is where they're trying that task if it's if it's a perfect task then you know this has been a great lesson because the task is is kind of uh, getting them doing all the right kind of thinking um and he talked about how presenting maths isn't the same as teaching maths and he says he's got that tension where he's short of time particularly with the students who lost time during lockdown and he says it feels horrible if you know you're kind of presenting without teaching and without kind of making the connections um he talked about I tell you what I thought was really interesting when he talked about the three different types of teacher. Um, yes, I like yeah, that. Yeah, connectionist, transmissionist, and discovery. And I, I've always thought of it as discovery versus transmissionist. Um, but I didn't really ever think about this kind of third category, which I guess is where most of us kind of aspire to be. Mm. And it, that is the one where it adds the most value. And he says, sometimes they teach by direct instruction. Sometimes there's problem solving. They're using connective tasks. And he talked about all these things. You think, yeah, that's kind of, that's that's what I want to be doing. 
Um, but you know, it's it's all about getting that balance. And he said, you know, there's not many uh, there's not many teachers who are purely discovering who never tell their students anything. It's meant to work it all out for themselves. There are maybe quite a lot of teachers who are tra- transmissionist. Um, but he just sort of talked about these teachers that kind of you know use a whole range of different task types and, and approaches to kind of uh, to kind of do a bit of everything. Um, so that was really interesting, and then and then the, the the rest of the session, which obviously I love I love tasks, so I, I really enjoyed that he showed us a load of really good tasks, um, and um, one that I particularly liked was uh, Tom Frankham's one um, about factors. Do you remember yes. that? One? So I, it, it was it was where it basically gives them say you give them sixteen cards uh, with the numbers one to sixteen on, and you get the students to sort them into piles, depending on how many factors they have. So I put my number one in a pile of numbers with one factor. So obviously that's going to be sitting on its own in that pile. And I put my numbers two and three and five in a in a pile of numbers that only have two factors. And then obviously my, my number four, my card number four is going to go in a pile of any number that has three factors. Mm. Now we know that there's going to be square numbers in that pile because four and nine have three factors. But so the, the students are basically going through each of these numbers one to 16 and they've got the, the fluency bit because they're sitting there working out how many factors. So they're listing the factors of each of those numbers. So this isn't a task that says um, list all the factors, but however, they are having to inadvertently list all the factors in order to complete the task. So they're sitting there doing the fluency bit and they're, they're figuring out the factors and then, and then they're putting them into the piles. And then there's that ge- generality or that rich dialogue that comes out of saying, well, now we've got our piles. Let's look at this really interesting thing. Everything, every number that's got two factors, every number in that pile, well, that's a prime number. And everything that's got three factors, well, that's going to be a square number. And I thought that was, that was just a really lovely task because any of these things where instead of just saying, oh, list all the, list the numbers from 116 and write down their factors, which is a really dull task, it just turns it into, they're still doing that, they're still getting the practice, but it turns it into a task that generates rich discussion. So I thought that was yeah, really lovely. I, I, I love that too. And I also liked what he said at the start um, when he was introducing that task, where he said, by taking attention off, we might develop fluency better. So mm. if you say to kids, list all the factors of these numbers, that's all they're focusing on. But by Kind of, and it's almost counterintuitive this because by all, by kind of bringing an, this extra element into this kind of sorting the numbers and so on, their attention is slightly off this method that they're carrying out, and the argument being that they then learn it deeper. Now I need to wrestle with that a little bit because, as I say, it feels a bit counterintuitive, but I, I like the idea of that by taking attention off what we're doing, we actually end up learning it, learning it more. What, what what's, what's your take on that, Joe? Have I interpreted that right? Yeah, think? I mean, it's interesting to think you learn it more. Um, I mean, obviously, it generates all that really rich dialogue, and then you get the kind of um, kind of I guess I guess they learn more in that lesson because they're learning about mm. properties of numbers more but whether they learn how do you uh, how do you list the facts of a number anymore whether you give them to in whatever format you give it to, i'm not sure but i know i mean it kind of reminds me of so th- this week i did the 1089 classic lesson with my year sevens um which is a really kind of well-known lesson format where you have basically a, a math trick and and where they, they they end up doing loads of additions and subtractions um, but that's kind of a similar thing where I wanted them, I wanted the procedural fluency. I wanted them to practice adding and subtracting. I wanted to give me the opportunity to check whether they could use column addition and subtraction and then go and help those that couldn't. But I made it part of a richer discussion. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I really like things like that. I think it's, um, I, I'm not, I, I don't, I mean, I don't, it doesn't necessarily mean that they, 
they they learn the the procedural fluency thing um, better, I suppose. But it just means that it's a more engaging activity, um, and it's a richer experience for them. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Um, my my favorite bit, by the way, about this session um, was was when he started to talk about learner generation and, and generating examples and stuff themselves, because this is another thing that can get, I think, misinterpreted. And I think I've been guilty of this as well. And um, sometimes, again, I won't name any names, but there are certain people on Twitter where anytime any kind of um, worksheet or task appears, their response is, it's better to get the kids to come up with their own examples. And my, my kind of response to that is always, I'm not sure it is, because as a teacher, we can carefully select our examples to make sure that we avoid ambiguous cases, or we draw out misconceptions, or we cover as wide a domain of the concept as possible. But what I liked about Chris's examples on learner generation is that they, they were a progression. So it started off with a lot of constraints in there it was essentially just kind of a he shared one about um logs yeah which the first the first row the first row of that was essentially you know a standard kind of textbook question but then as you move down through the sequence of questions the constraints start to come off and the kids start to come up with more and more of their own examples so for me that's when learner generation really works once kids have had a bit of practice of perhaps some teacher written examples teach carefully thought through sequenced examples then as they get a bit more confident with that, a bit more fluent, then I think it's the time to start letting the reins off a bit and letting them start to generate their own examples. I think there's a danger that if we allow that from the very start, that confusion can happen and that kids don't perhaps get the the, the, the amount or the quality of practice that they need. I don't know, do you agree or disagree, Joe Morgan? Yeah, I know, I agree with you on that. And there, there was, but then, I don't know, there's the, there's the kind of, you know, the situation where you have like that log example where, like you say, there were a few blanks early on, but there weren't really many options you could put in there. Mm. And then by the end, there were, you know, lots of blanks and then the learners could basically come up with, with their own ideas for that. Um, but then you've also got those, the learner generated examples of things like, um, you know, he showed that grid and it was a positive plus positive. And then yes. you have to fill in, can, can can we think of an example that sums to a positive number? Well, that's easy. You could use any two positive numbers there. Can we think of an example that sums to zero? Well, not if we're adding two positive numbers. Mm. And can we think of an example that sums to negative? Um, again, not if we're using two positive numbers. And there was that grid to fill in. Um, and I'm thinking, yeah, I need to, I'm going to use that. And it, and I suppose you could say that, that's a, a learner-generated one, isn't it, where they're coming up with examples. Um, but it's very, it's, it's very structured. Um, so you've got that kind of nice structure there and they can sort of have a sort of ponder each gap and think, can I think of an example to go in that gap? But I would argue, I, I agree. I looked at that grid and I thought that is brilliant. I love that. But imagine if you're a kid who's never added a negative or positive number together, oh, given that, that, that grid, then, then you're in trouble. You know, you need that structure beforehand, right? Oh, absolutely. No, you're right. Yeah, that that's not going to work if the if they don't know how to haven't got haven't got the the procedure really. Yeah. So yeah. So I'm. I mean, I'm thinking. Um, I'm thinking of using that, but using it as kind of a rich task following on from some teaching of those skills and some practice so you're, you're absolutely right it's just about getting the timing right for that you know I want them to stop and sort of think and generalize um but I I don't want them to generalize uh, they can't they can't do it if they don't know how to do these things so absolutely yeah. absolutely and the only other thing I was going to mention from Chris's session and then I'll throw it back over to you in case we, we've left anything out I love that quote right towards the end where he's talked about task design and said no one can design great tasks in isolation you come up with an idea you try it out with the kids and then you show it to colleagues and tasks evolve over time and he talked about how his negative number task had evolved into 
the kind of final version where he started. He was inspired by Don Stewart. He was inspired by Richard Perring. And then he's come up with these these different size positive and negative counters that he's, he's really happy with. And it, it's one of my great regrets that I never got to interview on this podcast, Malcolm Swan, because I, mm. by all accounts, he was the, the king of task design. And he mentioned how working with Hugh Burkhart, that was their, their thing. They would come up with an idea, but that wasn't the end of the story. That was just the start of the story and so on. So again, it's fascinating, isn't it, Joe? I know you... I know you like always kind of describe yourself as somebody who more kind of curates quality mm. resources, but I, you've certainly written, you've written a wonderful, one of the most popular sequences on variation theory is your fill in the gaps oh, um, sectors of circles one. So it's fascinating, like art form, isn't it? Kind of creating yeah. tasks. But, I mean, really, yeah, that's one of the very few tasks I've ever written. And the thing is, I mean, he, Chris said, task design is bloody complicated and he's absolutely right and I I would never claim to be a task designer um, but there are experts in it and I love the way that Chris is developing his expertise mm. himself and becoming an ex- excellent task designer um, but he admits that it's complicated and you know he showed that example where he'd um, find the mean find the standard deviation and um, it was a really lovely task which really showed it was kind of like a variation theory type task wasn't it where it had um, it had sort of just maybe five or six examples and just one little thing changed each time and it's really makes you think about the concept of mean and deviation it's really great but then someone said oh but all your numbers are in um, ascending order and it almost suggests to students that they have to be in ascending order to find the mean which we know is true and little things like that you, you can't tell until you, well, you may, maybe you can, but mostly you can't tell until a student says something and you're like, oh God, I didn't mean for that consequence. I didn't mean, I didn't mean to suggest that. So really task design, you, you put all this thought into it, use it in the classroom and then you have to keep refining it. So that's, so it's, yeah, it's a huge, a, a really complex skill. Um, and, and yes, people like Don Stewart and Malcolm Swan were the real leaders in the field there. They really knew what they were doing. I agree. It's, it's fascinating. Whenever somebody sends me a sequence that they've written for variation theory, and this happens a lot, they'll send me a sequence saying, I've written this and I'm going to try it out with my kids tomorrow. I never put it straight on the site because I know what's going to happen. Tomorrow night, I'll get an email saying either there was a mistake in it or I've changed this in it or this happened. So I've yeah. added this question. Like no good task survives intact its first exposure to a class of kids. Yeah. You know, it's the, they're always evolving. Yeah. But yeah, I, I loved I loved that session. I yeah, think it was, it was a brilliant great. session. And as I say, I want to get Chris on the show to talk more about tasks, but also I'm fascinated how he's changed as a teacher, having had, I think, at least a year, maybe two years out of the classroom to to really think deep and work a lot with Mark McCourt and so on. Now he's back in there. How, how have things changed? What's, what's worked? What hasn't? So, yeah, fingers crossed we'll get Chris back on the show. Yeah. Anyway, session two, Joe, we, we went different here, didn't we, I think? Well, what did you do? I um, saw Catherine Darwin um, talk about uh, teaching compound measures with ratio and proportion. Go for it. Tell, tell me about it. Um. Right, so Catherine um, started off with this kind of, you know, formula, triangles are terrible, let's stop using them thing. Um, and I think, you know, a, a lot of teachers have stopped using them um, probably over the last kind of five years, where not to say that, you know, some teachers never use them, but certainly I think five years ago they were much more commonplace. Um, and she talked about um, what could go wrong in certain examples. So, for example, John drives 80 miles in 40 minutes, what's his average speed? Um, and I think we can all we can all see that that 40 minutes is the thing that's going to cause problem. Mm. Um, but what's interesting there is that the 40 minutes causes a problem, whether you're using a former triangle or, or another method, um, kind of, because then she talks. I mean, when you think about it, when you start looking at it from a, a proportional reasoning point of view, then it becomes those kind of time problems 
um, become less of an issue. So I'll, I'll explain some of the um, some of the approaches that she she suggested. Um, but at the beginning, she showed a video of a man, this mean man, who was, <laughs> who was, who was embarrassing his poor wife. He was said they're driving <laughs> on in the car, and he was saying to her, "If I'm going at eighty miles per hour." How far will I go? Uh, no, how long will it take me to go 80 miles? Um, 80 miles per hour, how long will it take me to go 80 miles? And it was he was doing this like video of her, like, you know, trying to figure it out and having a good laugh at her. But I just thought, you know, what are these people doing making filming? What's, why, why oh, it was like a real life thing. It wasn't like yeah. a spoof or something. Yeah, why right. is a woman letting her husband put that? <laughs> I would leave him if, he, if my husband <laughs> I would just be straight out. It's like, what are you doing? Like trying to humiliate me on YouTube. Anyway, that really, really annoyed me that he was, that was such a horrible thing for him to do. Anyway, um, he, so yeah, he was, she basically, she, she, that's just, it shows a fundamental problem with this miles per hour. Now, I have no idea who said this, whether it was a tweet or someone sent me an email or someone mentioned it. I've no idea. But someone the other day was saying something about the word per being problematic there. Um, if, if only the language that was universally used was 80 miles in an hour, <laughs> you know, because that word per is a bit problematic because I hear 80 miles per hour and I know that means 80 miles in one hour. But, you know, I don't know where this annoying word per came from that's now in all of our, you know, and all our speedometers and all that. But wouldn't it be better if we said 80 miles in an hour or in one hour as part of our standard language? Because that would just be a bit clearer. The word per is, is a bit annoying. But basically, yes. um, she first of all talked about bar models. So she said, if we've got this kind of, like, for example, if we had this 60 miles in 40 minutes problem, and we know that 40 minutes is the thing that's going to cause problems with calculation. She said, well, instead, we could draw out a bar model and we could say, well, we're trying to figure out what's his speed in miles per hour. So we draw out our bar model and we split it into, say, um, 60 minutes split into three lots of 20 minutes. And we know he goes 60 miles in two of those blocks. So then we work out how far it is. But she she kind of acknowledged that it's it's not ideal. I mean, we all know that bar modelling works brilliantly in some cases. And mm. some expert bar modellers think that bar models are totally obvious to everyone. But then actually, they're not always as obvious as the experts think they are. And she then instead suggested um, more a kind of ratio table approach. And this is kind of similar to when I did my um, topics in depth session. Um, in fact, I did it at Marvelous Maths and I on unit conversions. Yes. I talked a bit about ratio tables being used for, for anything related to units. And it was quite nice because she talked about. So imagine if we say to our students, um, we know um, our speed is 20 miles per hour. We know that means that you can go 20 miles in an hour. What else is true? And she sort of did it. So imagine you've got that in like a bubble in the middle of the, of the page and then you, you can sort of uh, mind map off it or just write your kind of ideas around it. If we know you can do 20 miles in an hour, then you can do 40 miles in two hours. You can do 10 miles in half an hour. Mm. And, it, and, it, and it really reminded me of tasks. I use a task from Teach at Maths on percentages when I do the percentage build-up method, you know where you say, if I know that um, 100% is um, £50, how do I know what 50%, sorry, uh, yeah, 50%, and how do I know 25%, and how do I know 10%, and all those, you know, that build-up idea. Mm. And I've got, there's a similar task on Teach at Maths for proportion, where it's like, well, if this this many um, eggs cost this much money, then can you work out, what what else do we know? And you sort of write it all around the outside. And it's exactly the same idea for speed or for any compound measure. You know, if we know that you can do 20 miles in an hour, we know all sorts of other things just by using proportional reasoning. 
Um, and, and that's a, it, it was interesting to me because I haven't, I don't think, I can't remember if I've, I think I may have taught speed once in my whole career. I just seem to have avoided that. <laughs> and, I, and I think probably when I taught it a long time ago, I did it in a totally formula based way. Yes, me too. Speed distance time, not necessarily the triangle, but certainly the formula. And I always do it by talking, oh, I say always, I've done it once, but by talking about the units and saying, look, we're trying to work out miles per hour. You look at those units, you can see it's miles divided by hours. You can literally see it in the units, mm. miles per hour, miles divided by hours. Um, but actually, I think next time I teach it, which will be this year, I'm going to go much more for the ratio table approach and just sort of doing that almost almost the same as the build-up method for percentages. You know, if we know this, then we know this, and then we can work out this thing that we're aiming for, which is normally a per hour unit. Um, so it's really interesting. And, obviously, and the ideas, proportional reasoning, ideas and this build-up method or the ratio tables they apply to all sorts of things like you can use it for teaching gradient you know we need our we've got our change in y and our change in x and to work out the gradient we need the change in x to be one um and you know you can use it for um pie charts and similarity and all sorts of things so i mean you know uh, listeners will have to kind of watch her uh, watch her session to sort of see all the lovely examples with the ratio tables but um, yeah, really, it's just about how there are topics that we teach through formally, many of them can be taught better through proportional reasoning. And it obviously makes a lot of sense. And a lot of people have been doing this for a long time. But actually, during the session, there were lots of people saying, oh, I never thought of doing it like this. And so this is definitely something that's really worth talking about. Um, I, I went to a science lesson the other day. I was watching a science lesson, and it was something to do with joules I don't know I'm, I'm not I'm not a scientist but it's something to do with energy and they were working out some you know the amount of if I if there's this this men this much uh, this many joules or whatever or kilojoules in um a banana how many are in this many bananas or whatever and, mm. and the science teacher was doing it in, in nowhere like nothing like the way that I had taught that same class proportion last year because I taught proportion using ratio tables and using this lovely logical um, set of, of calculations whereas he wasn't doing that at all and he was and I at the end when I when I gave him the lesson feedback I was saying you might be really interested to see how we teach us in maths because it's nothing like you've done it and it's pretty much the same thing so yeah it's, it's interesting that this kind of straddles maths and science this uh, this idea of proportional reasoning that is interesting that is I was I was really torn um, I really wanted to go um, to, into that session because I, I think I've taught speed badly I mean in fact I know I've taught it badly because my kids never understood it it was always one of those the, 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 when we ever we were doing GCSE papers and they were practicing they'd, they'd always go wrong on the, yeah. the speed one they'd on either the convert to the wrong unit or they multiply instead of divide and, yeah. and so on and so forth I never thought to do it that but certainly not the build-up method like I do with percentages yeah. I I'm no I'm no expert in terms of ratio tables it's something I'd like to get better at so but that that's that sounds to me whenever I saw you do it with unit conversions I thought that makes a lot of sense that but also I guess it ties back into something we're talking about with with Chris McGrain's session about this learner generation of problems that you could you could get the ball rolling with that with an initial statement about speed and so on mm -hmm. and then build it up what do you know what examples can you come up with and so on yeah I, I think yeah every time I go into one of these sessions I think god I'd love to turn back the clock you yeah. know and just yeah. wish I knew this when I was there, teaching there, it there's things like if you think about just a really simple example if you're told that you're you're go, you've gone 66 miles in 55 minutes and you want to know the speed that sounds complicated that 55 mm. minutes sounds like it's going to be difficult but if you just say if you divide both of those values by 11 then you know that you've gone 6 miles in 5 minutes 
And if you multiply both of those values by 12, you know you've gone 72 miles in 60 minutes and that's yes. the one you need. So it's that kind of simple logical reasoning laid out in like um, either using ratios or using a table. Um, and it does make a lot of sense. And it's certainly, I mean, I wouldn't want to do 66 miles in 55 minutes um, using a formula. Have, I mean, I'd have to write the 55 minutes um, as yes. a more or a fraction and I'd rather not do that. I'd rather do it this way. So it was, uh, what was really interesting, just just one point from the chat. I don't normally look at the chats during these things because it distracts me. But um, I did see someone saying, oh, but is this all, are all these things allowed on the mark scheme? And I think we really need that that kind of myth to, to go away. If you look at anyone who's ever looked at a GCSE mark scheme, read the beginning. No one ever reads the blurb at the beginning. There's a couple of pages on every GCSE mark scheme that explains how you mark. And it says, clear as anything, any acceptable methods will get marks. You know, it's yes. not, it's never just the methods that are shown in the mark scheme. Even where the mark scheme lists multiple methods, it's still anything, anything that makes mathematical sense will get method marks. So we really oh. need teachers to know that they shouldn't be nervous about introducing different approaches because of course they would definitely, their students will definitely get marks in the exam as long as it's mathematically sound. Absolutely. And I did a series of podcasts called Inside Exams where I spoke to, it was AQA, spoke to AQA examiners. And this was one of the things that came up, one of the big myths. And, and what happens when when markers are, are marking exams, if they come up, come up against a method that isn't included on the mark scheme, they just refer it to their team mm -hmm. leader. And then it just gets put into a modified mark scheme or they get sent guidance on it and so on. So it, yeah, it, it's not the case that if it's not on the mark scheme, it just gets a big fat cross to it yeah. uh, against it by any any stretch. Yeah, really important uh, message that, Joe. Um, yeah, that sounded like a, a fantastic session. <laughs> now, I have a confession to make here. Um, I went, session two, I went to see Dave Taylor and doing the right stuff. Now, two reasons for this. One, I love Dave's work on increasingly difficult questions. And secondly, I want to get Dave on the podcast. So I thought it'd be interesting. I was, if I can see somebody in action first, I always think, well, this is going to help me um, come up with questions and so on. The, the problem was 15 minutes into the session, we had somebody coming around to view our house. We're trying to sell our house at the moment. So I had my um, headphone. <laughs> I'll tell you now, they're not going to buy this house because I was incredibly unprofessional because I had one headphone in whilst I'm trying to listen to Dave chat, whilst I'm also trying to describe why our bathroom absolutely brilliant and why, they, why there's plenty of space under the stairs for shoes and so on and so forth so I will have missed some of the subtleties of what Dave was talking about and in particular I missed a lot of the second half of it but I caught the first half where he was talking about increasingly difficult questions I was just going to ask you Joe just to I'm not going to say too much about Dave's session but I just wanted to to know um I, I assume you use increasingly difficult questions in fact I think I know you do and um, when do you use them what, what will make you choose to use them and, and what do you like about them um, I, I, I like the, uh, I like the, the kind of accessible format. I like the way I can shove them on a slide. <laughs> yes. I like the way that, um, the answers are provided and I like the, I like the, some, it's quite often they're not suitable for certain groups. So there's, you know, there's, there's a, so there's this sort of this, you look at the questions and sometimes I think I've just taught this topic. I'm going to look at the increasing difficult questions, see if I can use this as some fluency. And then sometimes it's like, no, that's that's gone up. That's gone way too high for, for the students mm. who I've just taught. Um, but, you know, so but if you have a class, so let's say, for example, I think I might have used it. I literally used one last week and I can't remember what it was for. It might have been for something expanding or factorizing. I've been doing a load of algebra lately. Um, and it was just a really nice set of questions where you think, um, You've got the you've got the sort of uh, the fluency practice. You know that those who are finding it difficult, you're going to help with those kind of uh, easier ones, and they're going to get that support. But you know that those who kind of need that challenge um, are going to are going to find those last few that really make them think. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do use them fairly regularly, and I think that they um, 
I just, you know, quite, I just have to make sure that the that they've kind of, they've been taught everything that's that's in that exercise so that it is accessible, but yet still uh, a nice level of challenge for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I'm a hundred percent the same there. And it was just a bit like Chris's session. I love listening to people talk about why they do something, whether it's plan a lesson or in this case, task design, why they chose to do this, this, and this. And what, what I loved about the start of Dave's session is he, he chose three of his increasingly difficult questions and he talked through exactly why he chosen each example after each one and so on. So he chose his simplifying ratio one, uh, his expanding brackets, and then factorizing quadratics. And the factorizing quadratics in particular, I really liked. So um, the first one he did was um, x squared plus 8x plus 7 and he chose that because that final number 7 there's really only one choice it can be it's yeah. got to be you know 1 and a 7 so it's a nice one to, to start with but then it moves keeps the two pluses the same but then next time it ends in a 12 so there's more options there and then the next one is two negatives and then he starts to introduce a positive and a negative then a negative oh, and a nice. positive yeah. then the coefficient of x squared changes but it changes to a 2 first so there's only one possible option and ends in a plus five and then it goes to a three and ends in a plus six so there's more options and so on it was just yeah. again this was something I never used to do when I was first started teaching but I, I didn't have the ability to put in this amount of thought into the sequencing and I love this because I'm obsessed with sequencing through my work on my variation theory side but this isn't that similar that yeah. same kind of sequencing yeah. this is what I consider more fluency practice mm -hmm. the questions are disconnected from each other and yet the sequencing is still there in terms of difficulty, hence increasingly difficult. And it's it's fascinating what makes part C more difficult than part B and yet easier than part D. And I think one thing I was thinking when I was listening to Dave is I've never had that conversation with kids. I've never, once we've done one of these sequences, I've never said, okay, this is designed to go from easier to hard. Have a discussion with the person next to you. Why is this question harder than this one? Why do you think the author's done that? And I think that feels to me like quite a useful way to get a bit more out of these tasks is to kind of throw it back to the kids and say why do you think it's sequenced this way and could you write a question that's sandwiched in between c and d and yeah. so on I don't, I don't know what your thoughts on that are yeah that's a lovely idea actually i mean it's interesting because if you if you think about a, a poorly written task then that might be one where you know there's a couple of questions and then the third question is a real killer and they'll get stuck yeah. in it and the next question is easier and you always sort of think who would put that really difficult question <laughs> randomly there and that's just where it's no it's not been thought through so you know obviously he's thinking really carefully through the order so you can cut you know that when you use it you're not going to have that problem where they're all the whole class is going to get stuck on one really early on because it's just in the wrong place um, but yeah you're, you're right I think even if you're not getting your, your students to discuss the order it's really interesting for teachers to say let's think about you know, because also it helps you to think about, you know, have you taught, have you, will they know how to do those things? Like, you know, it's, all the, it's almost like that kind of atomization, isn't it? Of, of here's a thing we have to teach and here are all the, all the different mm. kind of um, subtle variations in the type of question you can get um, and, and, and what changes each time to make them more difficult. It's actually really interesting. That's interesting that, Joe. I'd never thought to use these for, for atomization. That's really interesting because that's, that's one of the things I find most difficult when I'm about to teach a topic, getting that list of that prerequisite knowledge yeah. down and perhaps looking at one of these, because these go for easy, from easy right through to extreme. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's good. I like that. It always gives you a, a sequence of lessons in a way, or, oh, or a, you know, because, you know, so you could... So yeah, I, I've been teaching, like I say, I've been teaching expanding factorizing to my year eights this week. And so we we did I my you know my expanding double brackets or my expanding single brackets then went into double brackets. And obviously there's an order in my expanding single brackets where I sorry, double brackets, where I thought, 
you know, we're going to both have a plus in to make it simple. I'm going to introduce some negatives. I'm going to introduce some coefficients on the X's in there. Um, and then I went on to uh, factorizing into single brackets. And again, first of all, you're just taking out a number. Then you're taking out a letter, a letter and a number. And, and then sometimes you're taking out, you know, like an X squared. To the, and there's, there's all these, that order um, is, is something that I had to think really carefully about for the order I was going to kind of teach that. And, you know, I've been sort of doing... I'll show a few, a few examples and then they, they sort of try an exercise from boss maths or from variationtheory.com and they try these little chunks but it's the ordering of those chunks that actually i suppose are pretty much exactly the order that that, that dave would have in his um in his exercises that's fascinating next time i talk about optimization i'll pass that off as my idea there, Joe. <laughs> so thanks for that one perfect fantastic right um session three i believe we went our different ways in session three well what did you do i went to see sam blatherwick um talking about um, implementing strategies for effective learning yeah tell me about that okay so i've been to sam sessions before he's always he's got a lot of great ideas he, he writes really good tasks and he's um he thinks very carefully about his teaching, reflects a lot on research that he reads. Um, he teaches at an upper school with um, over 600 year 11s. Um, Oof, I know. Can you imagine that? I mean, you'd get sick of those year 11s. Well, over 600. I'll tell you what, though, flipping game time's not bad whenever oh, uh, GCC's yeah, finished. Well, yeah, but he, as he mentioned in his session, imagine the hell he went through with all the grading. <laughs> yeah, true, true, yeah, um, true. But he talked about some problems with, they were talking about people premium and how to close the gaps, and he, he knows that a lot of his people premium students are in, in lower sets, and he looked at some of the issues in the lower sets in his school, and he noticed that the, the problems were uh, behaviour, um, challenge, so... Um, not being uh, more being focused on speed and depth so you know students getting feedback for doing things quickly rather than you know the right kind of challenge he noticed um that the teaching was the same he said that the content was different in the lower sets in his school but the teaching was the same so the pedagogy hadn't changed but he thinks you do need a different type of pedagogy for those mm. uh, those lower sets and he talked a bit about that he talked about how their absence was higher um, and he talked about um, the written work being particularly bad. And, he, and, he, and then the rest of his session was really on how he attempted to sort of tackle those problems that he saw in those classes. Um, and he, as well as kind of uh, making fixes to the behaviour, because we all know you, you can't teach if the behaviour is bad. He talked about structuring the lessons. And the main thing was uh, about retrieval practice and then spacing. And he talked about this strand curriculum. And I think this idea, I think it might have been a Chris Bolton thing, where he talked about you sort of do your initial teaching of a of a um, of a content and then you return to that one lesson later and then you return to it again four lessons later and then eight lessons later and then 16 lessons later so this was kind of this is their structure to their kind of oh interesting thing. yeah and he um he said and, and for one thing for students who are absent they, they're going to be there's a high chance they'll be in in some of those sessions where that content mm. so they're not going to they're not going to lose that content but also he talked about um, kind of the the type of the type of task he used for that sort of spaced uh, practice, and he showed some really nice um, um, examples of both of both the stuff he uses in the spaced um, exercises, but also in the retrieval um, exercises. You know what? During his session, I started writing, I started rewriting my retrieval stuff for after half term. <laughs> we're using at my school. We're using these booklets now. We're using these warm up booklets, um, which has has been transformational you know like it is the best thing i have ever done was introduce warm-up booklets 
Um, Because we introduced them really because the um, obviously we're moving classrooms all the time and we wanted a smooth start to our lessons. So when I arrive at say I have to teach say year eight in one on one floor, I go upstairs to my year nine lesson at the moment with my massive box of stuff, and I get to the room and they're all working already, or they at least have opened up their warm up book. They're not necessarily working, but I'm, I'm getting there. So they they all sit in there working on the warm up because I gave them the booklet at the start of the year, and it's made everything so much better at the start of my lessons because for a start it's a smoother start than I've ever had before um also I planned the retrieval questions in those booklets very carefully in the summer holidays rather than sort of rushing them each day when I plan my lessons and um all my lesson planning is quicker now because I haven't got to plan the warm-ups because I've done it all in advance (laughs) so it's really I found it totally transformational I think um the kids love it it's made my lessons smoother and it's saving me time so over half term I'm going to be writing my retrieval booklets for the second half of the autumn term. Um, and so, yeah, during during uh, Sam's session, I, I admit that he, he kept giving examples and I kept going and putting them in my booklet. So, um, yeah, it was it was really interesting to hear. I, I don't think I've had enough challenge in them. I think I've, my retrieval has been a little bit too much, um, a little bit too uh, fluency. And I think, you know, I just I need a I need a, a slightly different approach. Or I just need some slightly different types of questions. So it was, it was a really interesting session. Um, just on just on that Joe that's again I mentioned Naveen before one thing I really took when Naveen came on the podcast a couple of years back is she said that a mistake that she feels that she's made with retrieval and that I when she said it I thought yeah I've done this myself is that we ask kids to remember the easiest stuff we focus that retrieval practice on as you say the fluency whereas actually the we need to include the stuff that is the most likely to forget, the, the more challenging stuff. That's what they need the more practice on retrieval. And of course, those prerequisite skills need to be there for them to access the, the harder stuff. But yeah, whenever I design retrieval schedules or I work with teachers now to, to do so, I always say just ramp up that difficulty a, a little bit. Because the other thing is, if kids are getting 10 out of 10 on a retrieval starter, it's a bit of a waste yeah. of time. They're not yeah. really learning anything. So I always say, let's try and pitch it. So you're kind of, you're, you're kind of top performing kids are getting around about seven or eight out of 10 so that they've still got something to think about whenever you go through the answers and so on. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a fascinating thing, retrieval. It's, it's one of those things that it's, it's obvious that it's important, but it's a bit more subtle about how you get it right. It's about scheduling it, but also thinking a bit harder about the content. Yeah. And that, that sounds fascinating, Joe. And anything else before I tell you about my? Um, no, there were a few tasks that were that were tweeted that are worth looking at. Um, but yeah, it was it was a really interesting session. Lots of great tasks and lots of good chat about retrieval and spacing. So really good. Yeah. Nice. Fantastic. Well, session three, I went to see um, Colleen Young, Effective Use of Technology. Now, two reasons I chose this. One is I always like listening to Colleen talk. I'm a big fan of her, of her blog. It was one of the first, probably one of the first maths education blogs around. I yeah, think. I've been, I've been, I read. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've been, been an avid reader for, for many years now. She's still going. I think she still does a post a week. Oh, it um, amazing. Uh, she, she still does that. She is a, she's a hero. It's, it's really impressive. Yeah. It's, it's phenomenal. So that was one reason. And the second reason is I thought I could turn this into a bit of a game, Joe. Now, I always, I, I know you love this whenever I just spring something on you that I've not prepared you for. So we're going to play a little game here. Okay. Um, I'm going to, I made a note of some resources that Colleen talked about that I was not familiar with. And I thought, who better to put to the test than the queen of resources, Joe Morgan, to see if she's come across these. <laughs> right. Okay. You ready? And I should say as well, what was nice about many of these resources, it tied back in to something that Chris McGrain was talking about, and that is 
that he likes to use tasks that that lend to different multiple to multiple representations. So if he's teaching straight line graphs, he'll link it into you know well quadratic graphs. He'll show the different ways oh, yeah. of yeah. working out the intercepts, completing the square, and so on and so forth. And Colleen talked a lot about that with with her resources. And a general point that emerged from her session is that the way technology is these days, that how easy it is with things like Desmos, every time you solve simultaneous equations or you talk about an equ- any equation or any algebra, you might as well draw the graph because you can just bang it up there straight away and it just gets kids mm. to make those connections yeah. and so on. And I thought that, that was an important point. So anyway, here's, here's a couple of uh, here's a couple of ones. Now, I might come across stupid here because these might be the most well-known things out there, but I never heard of this one. Have you heard of this one? FET, P-H-E-T. Yes. yes. That's oh, well. That, that's been around forever. That's <laughs> uh, not a good start. It's like mechanics, um, mostly mechanics, but not all. Um, simulations, isn't it? So it's like you know, you've got kind of animations, um, and you can play around with them of um, all um, like pulleys and levers, and and but it's not just mechanics. Ah, well, yeah. The, the one that she showed, the one that caught my eye, was was solving equations. Now I've seen loads of things on balancing and stuff, yeah. but this was lovely. This right because yeah. you were it had the usual balancing scales, but it also. At each stage, you could click this camera icon and essentially take a shot of what the equation was like at the point, then before you manipulate it again. And what I thought was nice about that is it's keeping like a, a running track of your steps to solve the uh, equation. Yeah, yeah. I, I, t- I tweeted, I think I tweeted out a picture of it, but um, I thought this was lovely. And I should say, by the way, Colleen's doing a post of all the things oh, that right. she talked about so we, we can all go and find yeah, so them. I think FET may have had a bit of um, a bit of work done on it recently, but it's, um, it's always been, um, I mean, like my science colleagues use it a lot um and yeah that's that's um that's always been a really good sort of um like i say simulations of things so if you want to kind of demonstrate something then it's um it's got all sorts of things on there it's a really great website okay one nil one nil to you there let's see if we get the equalizer in here i mean i might as well just make up one here maybe <laughs> to, to throw but another one she talked about numworks n-u-m-w-o-r-x numworks uh now i know i have heard of numworks but i have no idea what it does no Okay. All right. So maybe half. Well, we'll call it a draw with that one. So this is where a lot of the standard units or the improving learning in maths um, uh, folders that were around um, when I first started teaching. This is where a lot of the applets have oh, been yes. re- rewritten because they were all in Java and stuff I don't understand. So they've been rewritten into formats that work. But on top of that, there's a load of other stuff. So there was another great solving equations thing where the kids could put in any operation to, to solve an equation and it showed them what the next step was. But what was nice about this compared to other ones that I saw was there was a real wide a wide selection of linear equations, maybe like nine different types with the variables in all different places and so on. And it was just it was just nice, a really nice interface. I really like the look of that. And there was also, to, to go back to what we said before with Chris McGrain, there was multiple representations. So there was a function machine applet, which also plotted it as a graph. As you put in the input, oh, nice. it plotted that on the x-axis and then the output went on the y-axis. So for any value you put in, you could see the straight line plotting and so on. And you could you could tweak that with any operation you like. So that was That's really nice. Okay. That was good. Yeah. Um, Another one, you're going to see, I'll tell you, these last two, you're going to know straight away. Um, graspable maths. I knew you were going to say that. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, that's lovely because I love the font. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at the font here. I've got a picture. That it's lovely. It is a lovely font. Yeah. You're right. So you can kind of, um, it's like you can play with algebra on the screen and it does things like you can kind of type in some, say you type in um, an expression and if you sort of pull the X terms over the other X terms, they kind of combine together in front of your mm. eyes. And, it, and it's, it's a very lovely um, algebra manipulation 
um, platform. And it, yeah, like I say, the, I, I use I use that sometimes just to make um, pretty looking resources. Sad, isn't it? Just because I like the font. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's been around. I think a few. I mean, you think if you read my gems posts. Um, they, I do read them. I, do, I read them to see whether you've mentioned any of my stuff, then I move on. That's my normal. T- <laughs> yeah, I've definitely mentioned that one before. <laughs> it's, it did, it, again, I'll be honest, the name was familiar, but I'd certainly not played around with it. Yeah. And, and Colleen showed a lovely thing. As you say, like it was all set out and I thought it was, it was a, I say, in a lovely font and I thought it was static, but then whenever she was moving things, Things were then adjusting throughout the whole solution and stuff. It was it was lovely. Yeah. And as I say, I'm not going to do this justice, so it's definitely worth watching Clean Session if you bought a ticket for, for the uh, for the conference or, or reading her blog post on that. And then the last one, which um, oh, actually no, two two more, two more. So this one I definitely heard of, but I I'd not visited it recently enough to to see how good it is now. And that was Crash Maths, I and mean, in particular for A level starters. Now obviously you won't be using this this year, but have you dabbled in that in the past? Crash Maths, yeah, yeah. So right from when they first launched, they were obviously on my gym space. <laughs> Everything's on my gym space. I wish people would read them and then they'd know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, so, um, Crash Maths is... <laughs> Yeah, really, it's just really good. For, it's A level stuff, and they had really, um, they have really high quality resources on there for A level, um, and um, yeah, it's it was well. Last time I looked, it was all free. But yeah, I haven't used that one since I stopped teaching A level. But um, and it was good. It was good because she uh, Colleen showed like a four question A level starter, mm-hmm. and then she showed how she uses technology to illustrate each of them, whether oh, okay. it's you know um, using factor theorem or doing a definite integral and mm-hmm. so on. It was it was nice. And then the last one. Um, now, Transom, I'm all over, right? Yeah. But I've not seen the refreshing revision. Have you seen this? I've never heard of that. Oh, thank God. Thank God, Joe. <laughs> it's been a successful end to the game. So it's so you know I like Jonathan Hall's math spot. You've got yeah. you can you can do like the starter grid and you can choose all your different topics and so on. It's kind of like that, but it looks just looks really nice so you choose there's a big list of things that you can choose to to tick so you can have like there's loads of different types of equations so you say i'll have one of them and then there's a bid mass i'll have one of them and the square root i'll have one of them Mm. and it generates a starter grid with answers but it also each one then it's weird how it works comes with a url so you can then send it to all your kids so i'm thinking for like distance learning or something or if you've got some kids off and stuff they can participate in the same starter you send them the url and then it produces the exact same board and they can try it and check their answers and so on. It was just, it was a really nice presented functional starter tool that I'd never seen before. So refreshing revision from Transom. I'll look that up. That will have to go in the gem space because I've never heard of that. Okay, lovely. Thank you. Fantastic. Yep. So yeah, I re- really enjoyed that. So that was uh, that was Colleen Young's and I'd, I'd seriously recommend checking that out. Now, session four, Joe, we both went to the same one and that was Zoe Griffiths. Now, no, I, no, I, I wasn't in Zoe Griffiths. No. Oh, you not? I thought you mentioned that. I, you, you... I was um, the session I was in finished early, so I saw the last ten minutes of hers. Ah, right. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll talk very briefly about about Zoe's because I, what I wanted to say here is now we often talk about this, Joe. That and well, you talk about it more than I do. That you really want to see more female presenters, yeah. um, certainly at maths conf, but also just generally, um, you know, doing doing talks and CPD and so yeah. on. Um, I think I've seen Zoe before, but certainly not for a couple of years. So I thought I bet I'll go and see it. And like the blurb really interested me. Marvelous mathematical moments. Now straight away I'm thinking, is she trying to get in on our flipping marvelous maths? So the legal team are on standby. But, but she, book she, launch, she, Craig. she spoke at my book launch. Yeah, she's yes, yeah. She, she's um she, she's good. Well, as I put straight away in a tweet, one of the best presenters I've ever seen, you know. I was hooked in straight away. And given that it was like session four, I'm starting to get a bit knackered at this stage now. 
Um, and given that it's online and so on, so you're losing a bit there. Like she had me hooked straight away. Re- absolutely brilliant presenter. And she went through, it was a bit like, you know, at the previous maths conference where it was Ben Sparks and Rob Eastaway, was it? We saw their, um, uh, they were doing kind of mad- maths tricks and stuff we, we, we spoke about. It was a similar session to that, but with different things. So mm. she did a nice thing with tossing co- uh, coins, three coins, which was um, which ended up being obviously all about probability, but in a, in a really slick way. Then there was a nice card trick, so I had my pack of cards ready, and then she used some of James Grimes' dice that beat oh, each yeah, other, okay. and so on and so forth. Yeah. And it was just nice. It was it was a bit like Ben Sparks' session from the previous one. It was stuff that I I was familiar with, but it's always nice to see how it can be presented in a way that's engaging to students, but in a really useful way. Because it's one thing knowing a trick. But it's another thing making it into a then like an inspiring classroom experience. So it's one of those that I couldn't do it any justice. So definitely, yeah, definitely check it out. But yeah, I thought she was an absolutely brilliant presenter. And you must, you, you're a big fan, Joe, aren't you? I'm a huge fan of those, yeah. And in fact, um, I tell you what, I saw her at my, she, she did, I think, my book launch. And then I saw her when I went to see the Royal Institution Christmas lectures where, you know, Hannah Fry did them this, at Christmas and they were they were brilliant. Your I, best I, mate, yeah. yeah. The rehearsal, Hannah very kindly um, gave me me and my friend tickets to the rehearsal and Zoe did the warm-up and Zoe was absolutely brilliant there so yes I'm a, I'm a huge fan of hers Th- this um this particular conference was very good on the female representation I must say I was very impressed it's the first one where I've done my little count and I've been quite pleased with it but, yeah, <laughs> it was good <laughs> but what did you what did you go and see, I and... see well I had I had loads I want to see because obviously I'd love to have seen Zoe um, but also I wanted to see um, my friend Nikki, who was doing one on multiple reasoning. But I actually went to see Christina Turner and Tim Chadwick. And Tim is a good friend of mine because Tim used to work at Harrow, Bangkok, yes, Mariana. Right. And so I, I normally do a maths jam every year with Tim. And um, he's involved in uh, White Rose and their talk was on equality versus equivalence. And the reason I'm interested in this is I... My school doesn't follow um, the White Rose scheme of work, but I look at the White Rose scheme of work with interest. So I'm always, you know, because I, I, I use that, I pay for their resources um, for year seven because I really like their stuff. And I look at their scheme of work for year seven and I just think this is a really interesting scheme of work. And it's got this yes. chunk on equality and equivalence. And I'm always looking at that thinking, what does that mean? You know, what do they cover in that unit? And and so, so I was just a bit interested in that kind of... Um, you know what was going on with that and um it was a really interesting session so it was it was worth going to fantastic superb and then um session five was your session and as i say we're it was genuinely i'm not just saying so I, if i thought it was crap i'd tell you joe and i probably put it on the podcast to be honest with you but i i thought it was brilliant i think you're getting better and better um at this i, I thought it was fantastic because what i liked about it and we'll talk more about this um when you come back on the show is it wasn't you you it wasn't you, you often your talks are very resource heavy right because you're resourceaholic and it's normally that's normally the payoff at the end it's like the setup and then it's like what well, we do topics in depth, right? We talk about the pedagogy, but it's laced through with resources, which is fantastic because it's what you know teachers are addicted to. We always look all of a good resource. Yeah. But this one was more, again, it was just fascinating hearing about the challenges of key stage three, why key stage three is often you know disregarded or undermined in schools. Yeah. But then you what your school has done about it. And I would just be thinking, if I was a key stage three coordinator or an aspiring key stage three coordinator or a head of maths. I would just be taking reams and reams and reams of notes because there was so many ideas there, Joe. So it was a wonderful session. And um, yeah, this is definitely, you're coming back on, aren't you, to talk about this? This is locked in contracts. Yeah, I, love, I mean, right? I love to talk about it. I mean, remember, my, it's easy for my school to focus on Key Stage 3 because we only have Key Stage 3. Mm. So it really means that we can think about 
what the best thing to do with those students are because we haven't got that distraction of the older students. So it's been a fantastic opportunity for me to really focus on those year groups. Um, and as you could see from my talk, I had like millions of ideas. Like there's so much that we can do. And the problem is schools don't really have time to do it. And that's, you know, I had I had a couple of key stationary coordinators message me afterwards just to say, you know, I, I, have, I haven't had time to do any of those things. And you've just given me all this sort of inspiration. And I hope now I can actually put some of it into action. But yeah, I, th- I don't think people need to sort of really stress about doing all of that stuff. But, you know, there's there are plenty of things available to really kind of liven up your key stage three and make your kids really love maths from the beginning. So, yes, I'm happy to talk about that on another podcast. Fantastic. And as, as you say, you put on the bottom of your final slide, don't try to implement everything I've mentioned today at once, because that's always the danger with, with all CPD, isn't it? That you go away, even from a maths conf like this, you go away bursting with ideas and you just try and do them all at once. And it's a disaster because it's too much for you. It's too much for the kids. It's too much for workload and so on. So uh, it's just picking the ma- the ones that are achievable, making those work and then starting to bring in other stuff. But yeah, it was a great session, Joe. And then I'm going to confession time here. Um, I, like I'm not sleeping great at the moment for a number of reasons. One of which is my, uh, my, uh, 20 month old son he's decided to opt out of sleep so we're, we're all kind of got to go with him at the moment on that one so I was dropping at this point um so I thought to be up for this podcast I'm gonna have to have a little nap so I, I took myself off for a little nap put the white noise on put the eye mask on <laughs> and I was uh, I was asleep snoozing away throughout this final session but um that's no disrespect meant to the, the presenters I would have loved to stay awake but I'm uh, I'm getting old these days what did what did you do though Joe to bring the conference to an end oh, well I mean Obviously, I spent um, the first half, unfortunately, um, going through my tweets from my session. So sorry, <laughs> the first half. Um, and then um, at the end, I watched um, Laurie Beesting, who was talking about times tables. And this was purely from the point of view of helping my own children. So this wasn't with my teacher hat on. This was with my mum hat on. Um, and she um, was talking about various strategies for learning the different times tables. And she had little songs and stuff. And it was actually pretty helpful, given that this is that my daughter is year four, which means my daughter is doing the first ever um, government times table test this year. It was, it was meant to be last year that they did it. But then obviously COVID stopped all that. So my daughter is now the first year group that will be doing um, timetable tests at the end of year four. Well, what do the tests look like, Joe? I'm a bit out of the loop. Yeah, they're, kind of like, they're online and there's this sort of weird thing where they're, they're on like, it's like um, they get given a, a number pad online and they have to very quickly type in the correct answer. And obviously the frustration there is that to some extent it's it's testing their their typing speed. I mean, mm. a number pad, but there'll be some children who take a minute to find the correct number. So I guess they do a lot of practice. One thing that's really annoyed me is that um, the, the, the keypad layout on the timetable test is not the same as the one on timetable rockstars. And it's not, I think, the same as the one on a keyboard computer. Oh, wow. It's upside down. And it's like, why? <laughs> why do that? <laughs> so um, yeah, that's a, that's a huge frustration. But you know, it's, I, I believe that's been that's that's been raised by a lot of uh, the primary groups involved in this. So I don't know if they're going to fix it. Um, but you know, my daughter does a lot of practice on Times of Rockstars, and I hope that at least they can. I mean, actually, on Times of Rockstars, you can flip the direction of the keypad when you do your practice. But to me, it should match the one on a keyboard. You know, she's using my yeah, of course, got a keyboard. It should be the same configuration. So anyway, I'm a bit annoyed about that. But yeah, it's they have to do that pretty quickly. And I think um, from a secondary teacher's point of view, obviously it benefits us hugely if our if the students come through knowing the times tables. So um, hopefully in a couple of years, we'll see the knock-on effect of this. But really, it's been really interesting for my daughter, who literally her first day in year four, you know, after this sort of long period of school closure, they've said they've they've just 
talked a, a huge amount about how this is her big year for learning all the times tables and she's going to have this big test at the end of the year and they need to practice every single day on times table rock stars. Gee, because yeah. this is one of those divisive things as well, right? Yeah. A lot of people say scrap them and so on. Well, what's your take as a, as a parent and as a, as a secondary math yeah, teacher? Parent, I'm absolutely fine with it. I'd like to, I'd like, I'd like, I'd like to know that her school are t- taking it really seriously, teaching it properly. They will, um, it's, I don't think it's massively at the expense of other things. I don't think it's, it's that like a big deal where they're just going to do nothing but times tables all year. Um, so I'm not bothered about it. She's not stressed about it at all. She she enjoys all the time table rock star stuff, and um, I'm sure she won't be bothered about taking the test. Um, so I, I I'm I'm fairly in favour of it. Although I'm not a primary specialist, so I don't like to I don't like to comment on primary stuff. But from a mum's perspective, I'm I'm absolutely on board with it. I can see the quote now. Joe Morgan comes out in favour of the times table <laughs> test. That's on Twitter. That's trending already. <laughs> I don't feel strongly either way. <laughs> fantastic right joe well we have come to the end of another uh, another conference takeaway podcast at the end of another maths conf now again as much as we've enjoyed this this online one it's i'm still missing the, the face-to-face are you joe oh yeah it's been so long since we've um sort of all managed to meet up and have a drink together and all that so yeah i, I am missing it um but yeah lasalle did a great job today um i cannot i can't believe we've still got a couple of weeks to half term because we're all we're all so tired uh, this has really been an absolute um an absolute killer of a term for like everyone working in schools is is this is this is like the hardest it's ever been um but yeah one day we'll get back to normal we'll get back to our conferences school will calm down and one day <laughs> hope and in the meantime, our listeners have got to look forward to you returning to the show and then Marvellous Maths 2. Now, a little test joke. Can you remember our tagline, Marvellous Maths 2? What is it? Um, misconceptions, uh, something, uh, methods and mastery. Catchy. Yeah, you've got it. You've got it. Fantastic. And we'll be uh, we'll announce the topics that we're going to be covering. We'll announce that in the next podcast. And we'll announce the price as well. Well, I'll tell you the price now. It's it's going to be cheap. So um, we we charged last time when it was face to face. I think we charged ninety plus VAT, yeah. which was very reasonable. Uh, we're going to charge because it's online. We're going to do um, twenty five pounds plus VAT. So hopefully it's going to be accessible to to departments. Bulk bulk purchase offers are going to be available and so on. And we'll be announcing more details uh, in the coming weeks. But we're dead excited about this it's we're going to we're going to use the medium to do things that we wouldn't be able to do um face to face we're going to try and turn it into a positive as opposed to a negative so um joe as ever thank you for speaking particularly after a busy day where you've been presenting you must be knackered i really do appreciate your time on this and i know listeners do and i will look forward to speaking to you in a couple of weeks so joe morgan thank you for your time listeners thank you for listening uh, presenters at maths comp 24 thank you for another wonderful day and mark mccourt thank you for for all you do i take the mick out of him a fair bit on this podcast but he's a wonderful human being. So it is goodbye from me. It's goodbye from Joe Morgan. Bye. And I have nothing else to say. Goodbye from me again. That didn't really work. But what a, what a way to end. All right, you take, <laughs> take care, Joe. And thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>